thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you join with me today. And you know, I I think I say this every week, but I really think today will be a tremendous blessing to you. It, It was to me putting it together. I actually began this morning looking back over some stuff I'd been reading and some scripture, and I just got so excited about what I would be sharing because it it's stuff that, to be honest, after 60 years in the church, I had never heard or, or never heard explained in such a way that it was meaningful. And so I, I can't wait, and I'm going to dive right in, but I want to begin with a bit of a reminder as to why this series I'm doing is called Foundations and what the last few weeks and this week have to do with this question of foundations, particularly since this is a podcast supposedly related to matters of law and government and politics. And you'll recall we got started with 1 Corinthians 3.11, which says that no foundation can be laid other than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. And so what I I was trying to say is that this verse is important for law, government, and politics. In fact, I've asserted that there can be no foundation for explaining or interpreting rightly anything apart from the revelation of God that we have in Jesus Christ and the knowledge that comes to us through the second person of the Trinity and the Incarnation, which for those maybe not theologically very well versed, the Incarnation is simply the second person of the triune God, the Son of God, taking to himself an unspoiled human nature, a human nature not impacted or polluted by the fall and the effect of of the original Adam's sin. And I probably should have added in retrospect um, that, that 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 understanding needs to also include the glorification of Christ, uh, namely his resurrection from the dead and the ascension to the right hand of God. So I'll add that now, but we'll we'll come back to why that aspect of things is, is so important to this foundation for all things and understanding all things, including law, government, and politics, uh, probably next week or, or the week after. But over the last two weeks is just perhaps a refresher or if you've just begun to uh, listen to the podcast, I've tried to lay the foundation upon which the assertion that Christ is the only true foundation for law, government, and politics that would make that intelligible, namely the Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo. And again, if that phrase is unfamiliar to you, ex nihilo doesn't mean there's nothing that causes creation. God is the cause. Uh, But it simply means that what we see as created 
uh, exists apart from any pre-existing substance or material. God didn't take some pre-existing something and then form it into trees and rocks and hills and human beings. It was a creation by God, by the word of God spoken where there was no thing and by his very word and the power of his word, the performative power of his word, things came into existence. Now, uh, last week uh, I said creation and the existence of the world we experience were not possible without the doctrine of the triune God. That if God was not triune in his very nature, there would be no creation. But while I did look for a moment at that and why that is so, I also looked at it primarily last week in terms of the inadequacy of the alternatives to this doctrine of creation ex nihilo, because Christians are, are, I think, generally embarrassed in social and public settings by their belief that there's a God who creates. We just, you know, that's been disproved by science now, and it's just not worth the trouble to talk about it. But we've got to talk about it. Because if the scripture is true, there is no foundation that can be laid other than that which is laid in Jesus Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that is so important today. If we don't talk about it, then we have no foundation for law. We have no foundation for seeing any reformation, any improvement taking place in law or government or politics. So because of that sense of embarrassment and wanting us to feel better that we're not just stupid and morons and unscientific, I explained why pantheism, which is the religious alternative to the Christian doctrine of creation, is just not a credible alternative from a philosophical or practical standpoint. It cannot explain what we see, touch, feel, smell, and experience. But I also explained why the modernists or the atheist alternative to the doctrine of creation by triune God, which is some form of materialism, is also not a credible alternative from a philosophical or practical standpoint. And if you miss that, and you would like to understand why, then I encourage you to listen to last week's podcast. But before I, I get back to the specifics of law, government, and politics, there's one other foundation that must be laid in order for those specific subjects to be fully appreciated and understood. And it's also related to creation. Today, I will explain why we cannot know what it means to be human apart from the knowledge of the triune God and how exquisite and beyond beautiful, beyond beautiful, is a right knowledge of our humanness, what it means to be human. The biggest problem today, at least from a personal standpoint, is we don't know who we are or what our purpose is. What is it about us or about what we do that makes my life have any meaning in an absolute sense, assuming we even believe our lives can have any absolute meaning anymore? 
Now, what I'm saying is, by the term absolute meaning, is that we can have relative meaning. And here's, here's what I mean by that. You know, I helped an elderly lady across the street today, or, or somebody that was struggling with her children at the fast food place, I, I took their, their, their trays and emptied their garbage for them. There, there, there can be relative meaning. That was a good thing to do. But is there anything more than that, anything enduring to the fact that I have lived? Now remember, I began today with 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. And what follows that verse is, is really what I'm talking about here. Paul was saying about foundations that to build on a wrong foundation is death. But even to build on the right foundation, but build wrongly, is to have what we do in this life burned up, even if we are saved from the wrath of God. And that's really the question. Can there be anything about my life that is not burned up, that, that has any eternal meaning, significance, that gives me purpose beyond the moment. Now, if the Bible is true in its assertion that human beings were made in the image of God, then we cannot rightly know who we are, what it means to be human, without a right and true knowledge of who God is. Now, let, let me just say that again. It, it should be intuitive, but if, in fact, we're made in the image of God, then we cannot rightly know who we are and what it means to be human without a right and true knowledge of who God is. Now, before I go on, I want to stop right there and say that what I have just said is not the way evangelicalism today, in general, even presents Christianity. Christianity, as presented today, starts out only superficially at best with God. Because the focus of preaching today tends to be subjective in its approach, not objective. Now, I've covered this issue of subjective and objective before, but it bears repeating. What I'm saying is this, the focus of much of what passes as Christianity today in most evangelical circles is focused on the individual person, the individual person's existential, in-the-moment experience, and God is mostly instrumental, meaning God is simply the means by which I live my best life now as one preacher, uh, very popular with a big church, put it in the title to his book. In, in fact, there's a big billboard coming into Nashville that declares that Jesus frees us. You want freedom. Freedom from fear. It mentions depression, bondage to alcohol and drugs. You see, what we're selling is not God, but selling something to you for your sake, not for God's sake, and your sake secondarily. It is a me first, me, most kind of Christianity. And, and see, what really that, that billboard should say is you struggling with these things, you need to be freed from the bondage 
of your will to sin and its dominion over us. You need to be freed from the law of sin and death to the law of life and righteousness in Christ Jesus. You see, those things that we want freedom from are secondary to the fact that we're actually under the wrath of God. But who wants to talk about that, right? Sell them what they want. Their ears are itching for a solution to their alcohol dependency. Give them what they want. Jesus helps you do what you want to do. You exist not for the sake of God, but God exists for your sake. Now, I want to mention here that I am intentionally using the word Christianity. I'm not using the word theology or Christian theology because theology or Christian theology is the objective knowledge of God. Who objectively God is. So what I'm saying in my choice of words is that theology and Christian theology proper would be putting first the knowledge of God. And it would be this objective knowledge of God that gives meaning and purpose to my subjective existential in the moment experience of life in this world. But much of what passes as conservative evangelicalism Christianity is the reverse. If objective knowledge of God is even needed, it comes after our subjective theology. And so what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, is that Christ is the only foundation. And if the foundation of whatever it is you are doing or living or thinking or being is not laid in that, then your subjective existential in the moment meaning and purpose will be shallow and what you do with your life will prove futile and in the end be burned up, even if you were saved from the final expression of God's wrath against sin on Judgment Day. Now, some will not be, but many Christians will live lives of futility because they have not grasped the true and only foundation that is laid for everything in Christ Jesus. Now, let us return to the question of what it means to be human, objectively speaking, and see how that changes the way we see ourselves, at least in comparison to the way the law and the United States Supreme Court sees us, which I suspect we'll have to actually talk about and examine more next week. But in terms of what gives our existence absolute enduring meaning is that we are made in the image of God. And here is why that thought should be more striking, more breathtaking, more full of awe and wonder than it probably is, than I know it was for me most all of my life. Yes, I'd heard we'd been made in the image of God. Yeah, that's nice, yada, yada, yada. But its significance, the beauty, the grandeur, the awesomeness of that is, is, a, is a recent revelation to me. 
And here's why it is so profound, because the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Now, I'm not referring here to Jesus in his incarnational state. I'm referring to the person, the second person of the Trinity, whose very essence is God, who is fullness of deity, is, in an absolute sense, the image of God. The same word, the same form of expression that is used of us. Now, now, here we go. Let, let's look at this. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse three and four. It's talking about the gospel is being hid from people, and the gospel is glorious. And it says, it describes the gospel this way: the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. So the phrase being used there to describe Christ is the phrase used to describe us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now it goes on, and I want, I want to, to, to bring this into play here because it will be important, particularly next week or the week after. It says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now, we, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but here the concept of firstborn, it is not saying first created, but firstborn. He's the only begotten of the Father, which is what makes him the Son of God. But he's speaking here in terms of creation, so he's speaking of Christ cosmologically, not just soteriologically. You may recall that I've said, I looked at that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Christ is the only foundation that can be laid, as saying, well, that, that, that's true with respect to my salvation, to matters of soteriology, that, that Christ is the foundation of my salvation. But, but here the Apostle Paul is saying, no, 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 it is more than that. Do not limit this concept that the Son of God is the image of God simply to salvation but it's cosmological, and he says that in the next two verses. For by him, in other words, by, by means of him, by the fact of him, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Now we're talking about the heavens, the spiritual realm, the, the realm in which the angels find their primary abode, and of course, we're talking about the earth where human beings find their primary abode. We're talking about the visible and the invisible. Uh, the invisible clearly would be the spiritual beings called angels. And he goes on and he says, and whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him, and I love this, and for him, we're gonna come back to that. And he is before all things and by him, all things consist. So when it's said that we bear the image of God, what the scripture is saying is that what is true of the Son of God in an absolute sense, not as Jesus who was incarnate, but as the Son of God in an absolute sense as deity is true of us in a relative creaturely sense. And, and notice how this thought is conveyed in the genealogy of Jesus found in Luke. 
And there it starts with Joseph and runs back through time to Adam at the end, who is there called the Son of God. Now, the first time I saw this apparent equivalency of Adam to the second person of the Trinity, I admit it was kind of shocking. What? But upon reflection, when recognizing that Luke is not calling Adam God, because the rest of Scripture makes it very clear that God is distinct from his creation, I saw the greatness of the comparison. How in a relative, creaturely sense, human beings are images of him who is, in an absolute sense, the very image of God. This is something that's far more than man as a rational animal, as Aristotle would have said it. It's, it's something far more than saying, well, uh, human beings have the capacity to love. Of course, we would say in a relative sense, compared to the absolute love that exists within the tripersonal being of God. But this is something more than that. God himself, the entire deity, is the archetype of man. It's not said, this was, I had to think on this. It's not said that we are modeled on Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, but that Jesus was made human in our likeness. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It's Hebrews chapter 2, 14. This is a profound thought that the second person of the Godhead in whom the fullness of God exists, who is the image of God, could be made in our likeness, conform to our likeness. Listen to what Herman Bavink writes of this. I've mentioned him several times, but he says this, from the beginning, creation was so arranged and human nature was immediately so created that it was amenable to and fit. In other words, it was appropriate. It was fitting for the highest degree of conformity to God and for the most intimate indwelling of God. I mean, think of that. The whole of creation was arranged such that, and human nature was arranged such that, that the second person of the Godhead, who is the image of God, who has the fullness of God, who is deity, could actually become the intimate dwelling of God in the person of Jesus, who was the human nature that was joined to the divine nature. Bavink continues, God could not have been able to become man if he had not first made man in his own image. That, that to me was an astounding thought. And then Bavink writes this, the whole human being is the image and likeness of God in soul and body, in all human faculties, powers, and gifts. Nothing in humanity is excluded from God's image. It stretches as far as our humanity does and constitutes our humanness. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. So, we see that God says, I've made man, I'm going to make 
mankind in my image. He makes Adam, and then he says, I'm going to make something from Adam, but distinct from Adam, comparable to Adam, in, in its essence, and it's called woman. Distinct, but of the same essence. And he says, but, but this alone is, is not sufficient to adequately convey and to communicate the glory of the image of God. So you need to procreate. And you need to actually fill the earth. There needs to be billions and billions of these image bearers to even begin to scratch the surface of the infiniteness of the glory of God and the image of God that is in Christ Jesus. The human is not the divine self, Bobby writes, but is nevertheless a finite creaturely impression of the divine. All that is in God finds its admittedly finite and limited analogy and likeness in humanity. Yes, he says, we're finite. It's a limited analogy. But what an analogy. I mean, have we not said, wow, look at that. That, that painting is so, it, it's so much like this. That, that's, of course, you know, a Rembrandt, let's say. Or, wow, this person carries himself or herself like, like so-and-so. You see, and, and, and we're honored by that. We're honored by that. And, and that's what is being said about us. Now, this is even, even more mind-blowing to me. Bobek writes this, In order to be the image of God, man had to be a recapitulation of the whole of nature. Now, let's put a little flesh on that. Here's what he says. He says, All creatures are embodiments of divine thoughts, and all of them display the footsteps or vestiges of God. In other words, the glory of God is in all things and reveals to some extent and in some way the glory of God. That's what Psalm 19 is talking about. But all these vestiges, Bavink writes, distributed side by side in the spiritual as well as the material world, are recapitulated in man and so organically connected and highly enhanced that they clearly constitute the image and likeness of God. Now let's put some more flesh on this. He goes on and says, The whole world raises itself upward, culminates and completes itself, and achieves its unity, its goal, its crown in humanity. In order to be the image of God, therefore, man had to be a recapitulation of the whole of nature, which is what I said earlier. And, and now he explains that. As spirit, man is akin to the angels and soars to the invisible world, but he is at the same time a citizen of the visible world and connected with all physical creatures. There's not a single element in the human body that does not also occur in nature around him. Thus, man forms a unity of the material and the spiritual world, a mirror of the universe, a connecting link, a compendium, the epitome of all of nature, a microcosm, and precisely on that account, 
also the image and likeness of God, his son, an heir, a micro-divine being. He is the prophet who explains God and proclaims his excellencies. He's the priest who consecrates himself with all that is created to God as a holy offering. And he's the king who guides and governs all things in justice and rectitude. And in all of this, he, the image of God, the image bearers of God, human beings, points to one who in a still higher and richer sense is the revelation and image of God to him who is the only begotten of the Father and the firstborn of all creatures. Adam, the Son of God, was a type of Christ. And that's exactly what Romans 5, 14 says. And here's the great question, the great mystery of our day is mankind wants to find dignity and value and meaning apart from God when we're told that we're made in the image of God, a microcosm of God, the recapitulation of all creation. What could afford a greater affirmation of dignity and value and meaning than knowing that we are made in the image of God? Oh, and yet the Supreme Court, having repudiated God, is now saying we can reconstitute ourselves to find dignity and meaning and value and worth in and of ourselves, and we exchange what is the very glory of God for something less. And we're going to look at that and the Supreme Court in next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I hope you'll join me then. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's FACTennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FACTennessee.